Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Egan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the history of Bank of Ireland on this, the 240th anniversary of its founding. And we'll be finding out about the highs and lows of its involvement in Irish history since 1973. And we'll also be exploring the old Parliament building at College Green in Dublin because it's a hidden treasure in the centre of Dublin city. Beautifully preserved old Parliament uh, room there of the old House of Lords and we'll also be finding out how the Bank of Ireland came into possession of it and the wonderful job they've done uh, preserving it and as its custodian over the past 200 plus years. You can email us your thoughts and views talkinghistory at newstalk.com and we'd love to hear from you. Last week we explored the Irish Wake Museum in Waterford and found out about how rituals around death have changed over the course of Irish history and if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows just go to the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. Tonight's show is on the history of Bank of Ireland, founded in Dublin in 1783. We're also going to explore a hidden treasure in Dublin city centre, and that is the old Parliament building in College Green. The old House of Lords chamber is beautifully preserved by Bank of Ireland. The rest is in fact now a modern day bank, but we're going to find out about the history of that chamber as well and how it came into the possession of Bank Bank of Ireland. And to help me talk about these issues and more, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. John McGrath, the premises manager and custodian of Bank of Ireland at Two College Green. Mick O'Farrell works at Bank of Ireland and is a published historian and is the author of 50 Things You Didn't Know About 1916, A Walk Through Rebel Dublin 1916 and 1916, What the People Saw. And last but by no means least, in-house guest Joe Lynham is the business editor here at News Talk. But John, I'm going to start with you and and a declaration that I, I know you about maybe 15 years and I've been in the Bank of Ireland and in the old House of Lords many, many times with my students doing mock House of uh, Active Union debates, you know, sometimes in uh, when people are doing documentaries about the period. And it is just an incredible resource, isn't it? It's one of the hidden resources of Dublin and uh, part of my job is to make it even less hidden. So we're always very grateful to uh, to you, Patrick, and to many of the other institutions that from time to time come to us to use the House of Lords and indeed to celebrate the, the great historical resource that it is. It is, of course, very much a, an operating bank and you know uh, that has to be factored into all of the, the machinery and how things work in, in the building as, as from a day-to-day perspective. But seeing your students come in and indeed the history of art students that come in from UCD and from Trinity and and indeed from the University of Limerick History Department and, and all sorts of academic institutions is uh, is a real benefit. 
You know, when people ask me if they're visiting Ireland and they say, where should I go? And, you know, they have Kilmainham on their list and they have uh, Dublin Castle and they're wonderful, absolutely brilliant. If you want to know the history, I would definitely go to them. But I always tell them about uh, the old House of Lords Chamber because it's free to get into. It's something that people don't know about. And also, as soon as you enter it, you're going straight back in time because it is perfectly preserved. Like, describe it to us. The, The two tapestries are there, the Battle of the Boy, the Siege of Londonderry. It's the same 18th century chandeliers. You see the Speaker's Mace from the Old House of Commons. This is like you're transported back to the 18th century. Well, I'm very impressed, Patrick. I mean, it looks like you could actually do the tour yourself. But uh, one of the things that I'm very happy to to mention today is that during the COVID pandemic, of course, we were required and obliged to close the House of Lords. But as part of the 240th anniversary celebrations of the bank, we are uh, restoring the the access to the House of Lords from the beginning of July. So people will be able to come in uh, every day between the hours of 10 and 12 to visit it. And I do hope that they will. As you enter the the chamber, you may not immediately recognise it as being uh, modelled on the uh, Temple of Venus in Rome, uh, which is, of course, one of the most important religious buildings in the ancient city of Rome. But Edward Lovett Pierce, when he was designing it, took the uh, the niche from the Temple of Venus in Rome and then reimagined what the temple might be like. So it wouldn't be the first time the politicians have tried to to invoke the Almighty in their deliberations, but making the chamber like a temple uh, was a very deliberate act. It's broken into three separate sections. The Holy of Holies, or the place where the throne of the Kingdom of Ireland would have sat. Uh, also a large statue of King George III, which of course, as you know, is now in uh, Maynooth University. Um, There's then a large section in which the two tapestries exist, made in 1736 in Dublin, in Chapel, is it? Um, Two very fine tapestries. Really, they're they're depicting uh, the Battle of the Boyne and the Siege of Derry as a a party political broadcast, really. And then there's a a small section at the back called the, uh, the Bar of the House of Commons, where you can see the Charter of Bank of Ireland from 1783. So that's a pen picture of really what it's like. You did mention the mace of the Irish House of Commons. Um, I don't quite know how to put this, but that was, of course, acquired uh, by John Foster, the last speaker of the Irish House of Commons, um, just immediately after the Act of Union. Um, He transported it, um, perhaps under the cover of darkness, to his home in Molesworth Street, and by descent, it eventually ended up uh, with his um, grandson, uh, the Viscount Mazarin, who, for reasons best known to himself, decided he would sell it in 1936 um, in London. And so it's a very interesting uh, tie-in with the Irish state, actually, because when it became known that the mace was coming up for sale, uh, the Irish government decided that they would telegraph the minister or the ambassador in London and ask him to trot along to Christie's and authorised him to pay £3,000 to recover the mace for the state. Unfortunately, he didn't actually speak to uh, their bankers at the time who were Bank of Ireland, and we had decided that we would also try and acquire the mace for the good of the of the uh, the national patrimony. So as at Christie's on this particular morning, these two men started bidding against each other, and the Irish ambassador got to his £3,000, which was an extraordinary amount of money in the interwar period to spend on a piece of silver, when Mr Bonham, who was acting on behalf of Bank of Ireland, uh, immediately offered the £3,100. The two men were carried into the street by the crowd that were there. Such was the excitement around this enormous uh, outlay. And after a lot of congratulation had been offered between them, Mr Bonham looked at the ambassador and said, could you tell me what in God's name the government of Ireland wants with the mace of the old House of Commons? 
To which the ambassador said, I understand the Minister for Finance wants to present it to Bank of Ireland to put on display in their House of Lords. So it's not exactly what you might call the, the greatest return to shareholder value story, but uh, it is a very important lesson in why you should always discuss uh, any significant outlay with your bankers. And John, why is the, the House of Lords still there? Like, why wasn't it destroyed? And, you know, when, like, it was the old Parliament after the Act of Union, the Parliament moved to London, Bank of Ireland purchased it uh, in 1803 for, I think, £40,000. But, you know, the story that I always heard was that uh, a condition of the sale was that it had to be destroyed. Now, I don't know if that is true, but that the, it, it had to be destroyed so that the House of Commons chamber was completely gutted. But it seemed that they just, or so the story goes, that they completely forgot about the House of Lords and it it lay idle for a century and then they thought, oh, this could be good. Uh, Mick and I have had many an argument over this over the years, but um, no less an eminent uh, uh, historian as Leckie uh, in uh, his History of Ireland states that he had researched the papers uh, surrounding the sale of the Bank of Ireland and that the Lord Lieutenant in a letter, a draft of a letter to Mr. Pelham, who I think was uh, the Chief Secretary for Ireland at the time, uh, he suggested in that draft letter that should the Parliament building be sold to the Bank of Ireland, that it was his strong recommendation that the Commons and the Lords should be disassembled in order to make it impossible for them to be used as a Parliament in the future. Now, that's a draft letter. We have no idea if it was ever sent. We also know that the Lord Lieutenant came and uh, laid the foundation stone for the adaptations to the bank in 1804. Uh, He would have noticed that the House of Lords hadn't been rendered uh, um, uh, incapable of being used and no mention was made thereafter. So it's uh, my strong contention, in fact, that there was no secret clause. And besides, in a separate letter, uh, Pelham states that he had been informed that the bank had already decided that they were just going to plough on and adapt the building for, for use as a bank. But I think there's also another aspect to this, and we often forget that bankers, uh, certainly in the 20th century, were looked upon as being trade. So whereas the aristocracy of Ireland would have had to have come to the bank to mortgage their estates in order to keep their uh, their lifestyles going, the House of Lords uh, was was something that was closed off to the to the ordinary people of Ireland. And so when it became Uh, useful to us as a boardroom. It was just simply the practicality of it being a very large room in which the court of the bank could meet on a weekly basis. And that's why it survived. The other story that's always told is that uh, the Provost of Trinity wanted to buy the building so that it could be used as uh, lecture halls and lecture theatres, but that uh, they were worried that the students would be getting into fights with the traders on the streets. And uh, the Provost, I think it was Thomas Ellerington, suggested building tunnels underneath. But uh, in the end, uh, the government didn't go for that and they went for the bank. Yes, no, it's very interesting, actually. The the tunnel um, discussion comes up very regularly and uh, quite a number of, of people will, from time to time come in and ask if they could see the tunnels that lead down to the the quays at the Liffey or that lead up to Trinity College and so on. But uh, when the Lewis works were being done, they did a lot of ground radar work. And I'm I'm sorry to say there are no uh, tunnels radiating anywhere from College Green. Um, But yes, you're quite right. The the college was looking at moving in for lecture halls. Um, I'm not entirely sure that the students had covered themselves with glory when it came to the Parliament in the previous years. So I suspect that the government chose a slightly more 
sober uh, organisation to take over and that might be the reason behind that. Mick, I'll ask you later about some of the, the things in the, the archives and some of the governors and so on but given that you are an expert on 1916 and we've had you on the show talking about 1916 uh, are there 1916 connections with the bank with the staff and with I know it, it wasn't an occupied building but uh, what did 1916 mean for it? Well on the surface of it at a, at a, at a a shallow reading of it. The bank had nothing to do. With the bank, of, well, the Bank of Ireland building in College Green had nothing to do with the rising. There was there was no activity there, and it wasn't occupied, as you say. It wasn't attacked, but but there, there there's obviously since it's in the centre of Dublin and the the rebellion happened largely in Dublin, it, it couldn't help but be involved to some degree. So, um, one of the one of the interesting things is that it might actually have been damaged during the rising by a single bullet which is, uh, myself and John are still looking for the evidence of that, but um, a Dublin University, uh, sorry, a, a Trinity student, Michael Taff was his name, wrote in his memoirs that he had gone up on the roof of the um, the entrance to, to Trinity College and when he went up there just to have a look during the rising, because he was curious, there was an um, uh, officer training corps a member, a cadet up there uh, with a rifle and when he saw Michael Taff coming up, he said, thank God, I need to use the toilet thrust his rifle into his hands and then went down stairs without saying any more. So Taff was left there with the rifle and in his own words, he held the rifle as if to fire it and then just got a bit bored and was looking around and accidentally pulled the trigger. And he said he noticed a white puff of, of something on the other side of the street and he thinks he, he probably hit the balustrade of, of College Green, Bank of Ireland, uh, with a bullet. Now, the the finding that bullet hole is a bit like a needle in a haystack, but but someday we might try and track it down. But um, some notes were returned to the bank in the, the months after the rising, and they were they were described as having been um, destroyed in the GPO, so they had to be replaced. Um, and one of the other one of the other funny anecdotes about the rising is it, in in some of the notes, some of the the board director meeting notes after the rising, it was noticed that a particular employee called Isaac Kelly hadn't turned up for work with no excuse given. Uh, and nothing more is heard from him that, I, that, that I've been able to find yet in the archives. But when you look in the uh, Sinn Féin Rebellion handbook, you can see in the prisoners lists, there's an Isaac Kelly and he lists his occupation as bank clerk. So that probably excuses him. I don't know. We don't, I don't yet know whether he actually went back to employment or not. But one of the sadder stories relating to the bank on the rising is one of our employees, Richard Waters, uh, I think it was on the very first day of the rise on the 24th of April he was a passenger in a car that was approaching Mount Street Bridge and um, I don't think they were asked to halt I think just there was a lot of firing around and he was shot dead um, Richard Waters uh, died I think Mick if, if I remember that story correctly he was coming from Dunleary I think and had taken a lift in a car with a friend of his his friend was uh, a uniformed officer in That's the right, army yeah. Yeah. and as they came over Leeson Street Bridge um, I think it was uh, one of the snipers uh, in that area saw an officer in the, in the car shot at him missed and hit the, uh, the bank official yeah Joe, let's go back in time 240 years then. So the bank was founded in 1783. Its first premises, of course, were in College Green. That was the Parliament then at the time, but it was at Mary's Abbey in Dublin. And I suppose if you were to look at the big picture in terms of the history of the bank, what did it represent in the 18th century? What did it represent in the years afterwards? I suppose, what was its place in Irish history? I suspect Bank of Ireland was the Anglo-Irish Ascendancy Bank. It belonged to the wealthiest landowners um, and it 
catered for their needs. Um, I did get a sense, though, that they pivoted fairly quickly in 1922 uh, and became the official banker for the new free state government, um, which shows a degree of um, flexibility in terms of their uh, political aspirations. Uh, But I suppose that makes sense if you're a shareholder and you're based in Ireland and you're called Bank of Ireland, you need to roll with the times. John made reference to the wonderful tapestries, which are very much anti-Irish independence, put it that way. Um, But yeah, the bank uh, worked for wealthy farmers, wealthy landowners, uh, the commercial uh, section of the Irish society all the way up to um, when it merged with the various other banks uh, in the 1960s and then became a kind of very generic bank in terms of catering for all types of Irish society. Uh, And by the time 1970s came about, uh, no one really knew what the progeny of Bank of Ireland is. Uh, it, It has a governor. It doesn't have a chairman of the, of the uh, of a board. Uh, it has a court. Uh, this is all very similar to the Bank of England in 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 the UK, which is the official central bank. And again, Bank of Ireland was mooted to become the central bank of Ireland. Uh, it didn't happen in the end, but all the structures and nomenclature come directly from the Bank of England, which is a, a few centuries older. Put it that way. Very good. And John, of course, Daniel O'Connell in the 19th century sets up his own bank because, you know, it's seen that Bank of Ireland is the bank for, as as Joe was saying, for the elite, for the ascendancy, for uh, for for the well off and that uh, O'Connell wanted something that would be for for everyone else. Well, Daniel O'Connell would say that, wouldn't he? What I would say is that um, the Charter of Bank of Ireland, given in 1783, did have a restriction within it that no branch of any bank with greater than six branches, I think it was, or might have been eight, could be established within 50 miles of Dublin. That gave Bank of Ireland uh, a, a racing uh, chance as as a bank when it was initially founded, but of course nobody had predicted that it would last into the uh, the following centuries. So, in fact, Daniel O'Connell, when he founded the National Bank, uh, had to sue out an English banking license, which meant that he could circumvent that legislation and he could have, in fact, a national bank. Um, we, of course, purchased the uh, the Irish branches of the National Bank in 1958, um, thereby almost uh, trebling our branch network across the country. If I could just come back to one point, though, about the origin of Bank of Ireland. I mean, yes, if we were having a discussion about the charter of the Bank of Scotland or the Bank of England, there are really very interesting stories behind them and why they were set up. Bank of Ireland's charter was really given in a in a landscape where um, something called the the three six three rule seemed to be very um, uh, attractive to to young men around Ireland, which was if you pay interest on th- on deposits at three percent and charge interest at six percent, you can go home at three. And this seems like an idiot proof sort of uh, idea. But what it led to was an enormous amount of banks being established in small provincial towns, trying to meet the money supply in the the, the demand for money in the country. And then, of course, when there was a run on all of those banks, those chaps tended to leave on ship for France. So what what the state really needed uh, and what the kingdom really needed and what the the merchants needed was a lender of last resort, uh, a wholesale bank largely, which could then supply money into the myriad of smaller banks around the country. So the Charter of Bank of Ireland was really given in order to establish a financial money supply system where uh, it could stabilise the the supply of money into the into the country, and that's largely what it did. And and as Joe said, I mean it, it 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 wasn't established as the central bank, 
but it acted as the central bank up until uh, the foundation of the central bank in 1945, I think it was, Mick. I think you're right. But if I could add to that, though, as well, back to 1783, um, the the bank was obviously, it was formed and there was an appetite for it even before it started business. And actually, before it started business in 1783, it was appointed state banker, 1782. So so there was a need for it and it was set up to service that need. So it was it was it was successful, if you like, from its, even before its get go. And Mick, even just looking at, you know, uh, John mentioned the, the branch network, you know, it seems to have taken a while to establish itself around the country. I'm looking here, 1827, uh, there were at that point, well, there was the Dublin branch, but then there was Cork, Waterford, Clonmel, Newry, Belfast, Derry and Westport. That It takes a while before it's it's in every county and all around the country. Well, yeah, I mean, it, we're, we're nothing if not careful. So um, we're careful with people's money. We're careful with our own money. So so we, slow but steady, I think, is, 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 is not a bad thing to be if you're a bank. Very good. OK, well, tonight we are talking about the history of Bank of Ireland. This is the 240th anniversary of its founding. Uh, Joe, before we go to a break, what would you see as maybe the, in terms of the big stories, the successes, the failures? What do you think the bank got right in its history? What do you think it got wrong? I think Mick's right. Bank of Ireland does have a reputation and did have a reputation for probity and for conservative lending. Um, it was the last in on the pitch when it came to the crazy Celtic Tiger lending. And it had to react simply because Anglo-Irish Bank and other banks were gobbling up its market share. And it didn't really want to do so. But shareholders basically saw their lunch being eaten and said, listen, we need to get into this uh, crazy lending to developers which ended up with Bank of Ireland, like the other banks, being all but swallowed up by taxpayers and bailed out by the state. And then in terms of the successes, that maybe the recovery from that would be part of that? Well, I just checked what the profits were. The pre-tax profits for 2022 were 1.2 billion, which is roughly a third of the entire bailout sum that they received in 2010. In a single year, they made back uh, a third. They have also paid substantial dividends to taxpayers uh, thanks to that bailout. And in that respect, they have come out very quickly from the pandemic, very quickly from a bailout. uh, And uh, you could say the taxpayer even made a profit. I would just add to that, yeah. I think we, we, we were bailed out to the tune of four-something billion and we repaid back six-something billion. So I, I think, yeah, slow but steady. I'd go for that one every time. OK, the same way it was in the 18th century yeah. is the same way it they is broke, don't in, in the 21st century. OK, we'll take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll go through the archives, look at the governors of the Bank of Ireland and find out more about its history over the past 240 years. Stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back. We're talking history and tonight we're talking about the history of Bank of Ireland. This year is the 240th anniversary of its founding and I'm delighted to be joined in studio by John McGrath, the premises manager and custodian of Bank of Ireland at Two College Green someone who's been a wonderful uh, person for all my students going back 15, 20 years and the old House of Lords at College Green is such an incredible treasure in Ireland and uh, comes highly recommended free and uh, a a wonderful uh, historical uh, treasure as I say also joined by Mick O'Farrell an employee with Bank of Ireland and published historian expert on the 1916 Rising and Joe Lynham the business editor at News Talk Mick can you tell us about the governors first of all, uh, who are the most interesting governors over this 240 year history? 
we've had in that 240 years we've had 97 governors right up to the present um so so uh, we're nearly at the 100th governor but uh, i don't know when that, i can't obviously say when that'll be but in in my research in the bank I, i've 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 got three favorite governors i think probably is is the easiest way to say it one would be num- governor number 16 in 1820 uh, 1818 to 1820 after he was governor a few years later, he was actually murdered on the steps of College Green by by somebody who was uh, deemed to be unstable, who shot him in the head, and apparently he had had bad business dealings. Um, um, Nathaniel Sneed or Snade was his name. Uh, my next favourite would be uh, Governor Number Twenty Three, William Shanyo Colville. He was governor in the eighteen thirties, and he was approached by a Mrs. Pierce, um, who had lost a banknote. Uh, a very large denomination banknote, and uh, she went straight to the governor. I mean, go to the top. Why not? Why not? The governor took it personally, took an interest personally, and went to her house to have a look around to see, uh, do some forensic analysis. Back in the day, he actually found in in one of her cupboards under a floorboard, he found some uh, cottony type material, which was uh, a mouse had used to form a nest. He took that back to College Green, where we printed our own banknotes, and the printers there identified that cottony type material as chewed up banknote. So he 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 understood that this was the note and that and it was gone and he ordered its renewal and re- she so she was reissued with a, a similar note. But then the even nicer bit about that story is that Mrs. Pierce had blamed her maid servant. No. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Shocking. And he she had uh, had her she'd fired her. She'd fired uh, her. I, I see I was feeling sympathy for her because the mouse had chewed che- che- up her, her note and she was yep. gonna get her replaced. But now when I discover that she unfairly accused someone else and fired them, I have no sympathy. Well, listen, pick on the most vulnerable, that's how it always happens. But the reason that this particular governor is one of my favourites is because he insisted that one of the terms of conditions for get, getting her banknote back was that the servant would be reinstated. So servant got her job back um, and and Mrs. Pierce got her money back. So that's a good one. But I suspect now the bank wouldn't accept that as an excuse. A mouse ate my, my like banknote. I'd like to see where on the form you could fill that in. Yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, my dog ate my homework. Um, but, 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 but the most recent governor that, that, that I have a lot of time for is um, Alexander Crichton. And he was governor in the 60s, but before 20 years, 20 years before he became governor, he was actually in the uh, Irish Guards and he was a tank he was in a tank battalion, the Irish Guards, in Normandy in 1944, where he was wounded by German mortar fire. So, so there's a man you don't want to tangle with in the boardroom. So, yeah, interesting. Three very interesting governors. We've, there's a lot more stories about our governors, but they're the three ones that I, that I like most. And, you know, Joe had mentions about the naming convention, the fact that the person is called the governor rather than the chair or so on. You know, that does date back to the very beginning, John. Yes, um, it, it's a lot of the time we get a little bit of uh, heat for this in the in the, the in the press, um, particularly around the time of the annual court meeting. And it does sound a little anachronistic today that we have a governor and a court. But that just simply goes back to the legislation under which Bank of Ireland is founded. It's a matter of some degree of pride for those of us who work for the company that we have a history that goes back to 1783, but also that we're the only company in Ireland founded by Royal Charter. So it, there are many other companies in Ireland which have charters, but ours is the first one, which is why our company registration number is so simple to remember. It's C1. And then they draw a line and carry on with everyone else in the state. But uh, it is worthy of pointing 
pointing out, however, that the bank has moved significantly with the times. And in the last number of years, when we uh, sought um, uh, an incorporated listing on the stock exchange, we were required to actually nominate a chairman of the board and a board. So the current governor is actually the governor and chairman of the court and board of the Bank of Ireland. And can I ask, John, what about before 1783? Where did people keep their money then or what did they do about that? Were there smaller kind of, you know, not very responsible banks or did they just keep the money in the house? Well, this this could end up being an entire uh, show of uh, talking history in itself because proto-banking in Ireland was largely taken uh, at your own risk. And then um, people discovered that there were goldsmiths and goldsmiths tend by virtue of the uh, of the, the, the métier with which they work to have to have safes and to be good with looking after valuables. So um, the, likely, the, the likes of the De Lier family, uh, who in fact gave, I think, four governors to Bank of Ireland uh, and were um, masters of the Goldsmiths Company in Dublin, they were well used to looking after money on behalf of people. And of course, to look after your money, they would charge you a fee. And David Latouche, who ended up being the the second choice, but the first governor of Bank of Ireland, uh, came from a Huguenot family uh, who had come to Dublin and established in the Liberties, weaving poplin, uh, and had been very, very um, fastidious in the way in which they carried on their business. So other Huguenot families looked to David Latouche and his uh, family to, to give advice on finance and to look after their money. And he then began to let out that money at, at a rate and so much so that in fact the poplin weaving business was given to his second son and his eldest son took over the bank and that's when uh, you get to see the beginnings of small private uh, what we might call today merchant banks in the city then you have an introduction of the joint stock banks legislation which then leads to the likes of the hibernian the northern uh, the provincial the royal um, and a whole you know, raft of, of banks. At one point, there were probably somewhere in the order of 10 other banks on College Green within 100 yards of, of our premises. And of course, now with the changing banking landscape, it's back to just us. Mick, what about the archives? You've been working your way through some of the material and a lot of the material in that Bank of Ireland has, and it seems to have great resources going all the way back to 1783. It does. It's, it's a fantastic resource. And, and it's one that we... Although we've had it for a while, we really need to, and we are beginning to do a deep dive into it. Um, but but some of the, some of the fascinating uh, things that we we already know are there that we're familiar with are we have some of the original signed debentures and leases going back to St Mary's Abbey um, in 1783 because St Mary's Abbey is just off Cable Street, so we started off as a Northside Bank, and and so some of the some of the details to do with the legal contract on that we still have from 1783 that that's probably some of the oldest stuff that we have we, we've got lots of uh, we, we've got uh, example ba- sample bank notes we have samples of notes that were forged in the early 1800s and and, and interestingly in uh, around the 1800s around 1795 penalty for forgery was transportation to van diemen's land in australia which was a death sentence for most but that wasn't enough. And um, what they did then was they pressed for the the sentence for forgery to be the death sentence. So um, banking was taken very very seriously back then. So we, we we have those kind of things in the archive as well. We've we've some more modern stuff. We have we have items relating to the employment of lady clerks in 1915. We have items relating to uh, obviously what we call the emergency, the Second World War, a possible installation of an anti-aircraft gun on the roof of College Green. 
which which didn't happen. But but there's a lot of correspondence around it. Um, so, yeah, th- there's a wealth of things to get into. And I, I'm really looking forward to rolling up my sleeves on that. And Joe, looking at more recent history, you know, one of the things I saw was that it was in 1980 that the first pass machine ATM was launched. And I actually had as a child uh, a, a, a pass card and had the big P and it actually lasted all the way until I went to college. And, and then the I think... P in, uh, with a little key. Yeah, well, that I, was still, it. I yeah. still have mine. You still have yours. I lost mine and I'm very upset about that because uh, <laughs> it was a beautiful uh, uh, design. Time heal all wounds. <laughs> and then Joe, things like online banking that was launched in 1997, mm-hmm. you know, and again, I, I think I was very late coming to that. Uh, and like it there's been a lot of innovations and changes in the way that banking is just done now. Very different from the way it was uh, even 50 years ago. Yes, um, I think it would also be fair to say that uh, Bank of Ireland and the Irish banks were slow to new technology, i.e. the pass card from 1980 would, would have been in regular circulation in the 70s in American banks and UK banks as well. Um, the first app, I think, was introduced, was it 2012 or something like that? Again, that might have been a, a year or two behind the UK and uh, European banks. Uh, so this goes back to the conservative nature of Bank of Ireland. They want to wait until everyone else has tested it before they go ahead and do it. So they don't want to take a risk with their own clients. Um, but we are moving into a world where banking is no longer face-to-face. Increasingly, you can uh, apply for major loans without ever meeting a human being. And you can do it uh, in in your phone in some cases, and you can do certainly do it online. And that is the direction of travel. Um, having said that, though, uh, closing down branches, as AIB discovered last year, is a political hot potato. And uh, again, Bank of Ireland waited to see how others would, uh, what response other banks would get before they decide what to do with their bank branches. Uh, but they haven't closed down anything like the number proposed by AIB who did a U-turn, I must say. Uh, and permanent TSB, the third pillar in the Irish banking circle uh, in 2023, they decided to add branches because they saw the political damage that could be caused by closing down branches. But yes, face-to-face banking is going to soon be uh, the exception and not the rule. And Joe, the other thing that struck me looking at the more recent history is the number of partnerships and joint ventures that the bank has embarked on, whether with Iridian Asset Management or, you know, ventures with the Canadian Post Office or with a foreign currency exchange in the United States, that there seems to be an increasing number of joint ventures. Yeah, because it's very expensive to actually acquire these banks. And of course, the bank had a much bigger portfolio until the financial crisis. Uh, Bristol and West was their major your footprint uh, in the UK it was the ninth biggest building society when it was bought. Iridium in the States, of course, they had Chase Devere at one point as well. So in other words, after the financial crisis, all bets were off. They were ordered by the European Commission to sell off their stakes in ICS and other um, building societies that uh, were part of Bank of Ireland Group. Uh, and to focus on the stick to the knitting, to focus on Irish domestic market. And if your bank is called Bank of Ireland, it's difficult to say if you're in Poland or in Britain that your bank should be taken seriously as a player. That's why they prefer these joint ventures. They provide a lot of the banking services for uh, Royal Mail in the UK. 
And Joe, I'm just wondering, will there ever be a kind of an EU bank, a European bank, so that therefore it doesn't matter whether you're in Ireland or in Spain or in Italy or whatever, you can just use your, go in, it'll all be in the same thing. And, and given that we're travelling more and uh, uh, working in different places, that it could make things an awful lot easier. There should be. A single market should have no barriers whatsoever, but the single market is not complete. It is not finished at all. Why is it that last year... Irish uh, mortgage holders were paying twice as much as the EU average and three times as much as Luxembourg. Now, I wrote to the Luxembourg regulator and said, why can I not apply for a loan with you in Luxembourg? You will have full rights on lien on the property uh, that I'm buying in Ireland, but I much prefer your interest rates to Bank of Ireland, AIB and permanent TSB's rates. Now, having said that, the cost of borrowing for Irish mortgage holders has gone rapidly down and we're now roughly the EU average. We were below the EU average until about two months ago. Um, but yeah, the single market is not ready. They're talking about a capital markets union. They've, they even have a capital markets union commissioner. Um, but he and she haven't done the job when it comes to uh, enabling a full cross-border banking situation. There's been a few efforts at it, but... The local legislation always says, I need to have you in my orbit, Mr. Luxembourg Bank, Mr. Polish Bank, Mr. Italian Bank. You need to be physically in my orbit. And I don't want you having a lien on my property uh, unless you have a country manager who's very senior that I can talk to every day in the Central Bank of Ireland. John. There's also very interesting connections with the military history of Ireland when you look at the bank. And uh, even when you go to uh, College Green, uh, like there are, what are they, kind of like replica cannon outside? Oh, gosh, no, there's nothing replica about those, uh, I can tell you. Well, um, Bank of Ireland, when it moved to the College Green premises, uh, realised that it needed... Uh, in a landscape that had no police force at the time, of course, because the uh, Robert Peel hadn't introduced the, the the act in Ireland, I think, until 1809. So um, institutions such as Trinity College, Bank of Ireland and so on were allowed to raise their own corps of yeomanry. And Bank of Ireland had a, a corps of troops standing at a strength of somewhere around about 130. Now, any of the members of the court of the bank who held military rank were automatically officers uh, in the the Corps of Guards. And they mounted the guard on College Green and changed the guard every day until 1833. There is a a documented and rather amusing story that one of the, shall we call them Ruperts, uh, the officers in the Corps, decided that they would parade the troops up to the Phoenix Park and they would put on a display and all of the the uh, the finery of Dublin turned up to see this and there was lots of marching around and lots of saluting and at the very end a volley of shots was to be fired but clearly blanks uh, unfortunately the officer in charge didn't give the order to remove the ramrods from the brown best muskets and so when the troops fired uh, suddenly all of these ramrods like arrows came shooting across the uh, towards the spectators and it was decided at that point that perhaps the bank having its own troops was not necessarily a good thing so the corps of yeomanry was disbanded and the regular army took up the guard guarding the bank until uh, the 22nd of february 1922 and if you go on to um Uh, YouTube and go to the Pathé News uh, uh, Reel section, you can find a video of the Irish Army uh, coming into College Green to take up the picket guard 
uh, in the front piazza. Now, we weren't, and we aren't, a state-run bank and we're not a state uh, building, but the military in Ireland and the government saw that it was a systemically important building that required extra care and attention and guarding, and that's why the army were provided. The Irish army remained uh, on duty until 1946, and interestingly, in the archive, Mick and myself have just recently discovered protracted correspondence going back to when the Duke of Connaught was the head of the army in Ireland, where the army were regularly writing to the bank asking if they could reduce the number of soldiers on guard. The bank were protesting. And this went on when the Irish army took over uh, until eventually in 1946, they simply said, we have reduced the guard to the size of a sergeant's guard and um, uh, our demands elsewhere require the troops to be taken away. And so at that point, they walked out, left the sentry boxes behind them and that was the end of our military guard. The carronades, uh, as they are more correctly called, which are two naval guns that are on the uh, piazza, are um, are only there since 1926. Oh. They have been on the premises, however, f- uh, since 1808, but they were um, largely kept away from public gaze as a, as a potential um, riot control uh, method, we think. Um, they were discovered by Governor uh, Henry Seymour Guinness in 1926, and he thought that they would look particularly attractive out in the front yard. They're a short muzzled naval cannon designed to have a very wide choke and produce a lot of noise and smoke, but not necessarily uh, do a lot of damage. They were there so that the yeomanry could ultimately uh, retire under uh, under the cloak of fire. And Daniel O'Connell, when he was leading his repeal campaign, he wanted to restore the Irish Parliament at College Green. And when he was released from prison, he he had his huge carriage bring him in the crowds outside Car- College Green and he tipped his cap to it. And, you know, that was the dream, restoring the Parliament. And I just wonder when... Irish independence then was secured. Was there ever any discussion of of having the parliament at College Green or maybe I suppose by that and kick you out, kick the bank out or was it always more likely that it would be somewhere like Leinster House? Well, it's interesting you should say that because there's there's quite a lot of discussion in the court of public opinion always about the building and about, you know, the Irish parliament and the the place that the parliament of Ireland uh, had within the context of the building. There is protracted correspondence uh, at the uh, foundation of the state, but it was quite clear that the government had decided to go in a different direction. I think it's important to remember that when the building was built, uh, the design of Edward Lovett Pierce was very much for a parliament that we wouldn't recognise today. There were no secretaries, no parliamentary assistants. Members of parliament didn't receive constituents. Um, the parliament met infrequently Um, And so if a modern European-style parliament, as was conceived in 1922, were to move into the building, the very first thing they would have had to have done largely is to have built about four storeys onto the building in order to accommodate the sheer numbers of people that would be required. So I think practicality took over in 1922. That's notwithstanding the fact that everybody from John Redmond all the way back to Emmett uh, would have pointed to the Parliament building as a totemic uh, image of Irish political independence. It's important to remember that in the history of the building, it was Parliament for 70 years. It's been a bank for over 200. Um, you know, So it was a very brief period of its history, uh, as we look at it now, in which it was Parliament. It, it was built for the needs that were there in the 1720s, 30s. I mean, it's utterly unsuitable, as John says, for any modern use to, to do with Parliament. Um, I mean, we, we 
find it hard to find good uses for it. It's difficult to find ways around it to, for modern banking needs. So for parliamentary needs, no. But I mean, it, it is totemic, as John says, it, and it, it's smacking the heart of Dublin and it looks fantastic. And, and it, it's interesting to see, to look back to any historical documents um, or, or books about any periods in Irish history. And, and Bank of Ireland uh, and College Green is the centrepiece. It's the logo. It's, it's, the, it's what people use as a backdrop for all sorts of things presidential visits. Well, exactly. maybe let's talk about the presidential visits because I, rem- I was there in the crowd when Barack Obama as president gave his speech, uh, I think it was 2011 uh, when he visited and he was meant to visit Glasnevin Cemetery the next day but there was the ash cloud and so uh, he wasn't able to do it. But uh, for so many civic events and state events and freedom of the city, uh, I think when Nelson Mandela uh, got his freedom of the city and uh, it, it's, it, it plays this kind of sense central part in in Irish social, political, cultural life as well. I think it's fair to say that the bank, whenever the, the national jersey needs to be worn, or indeed the the city jersey, the, the Dublin uh, uh, jersey, we've always uh, happily stepped up to do it. Um, bank of Ireland has been not only at the centre of the financial life of the country for the last 240 years, but we've been uh, critical in the likes of the Dublin Chamber of Commerce and all of the great financial initiatives like that. So it's hardly surprising that when we have major civic events which require, as Mick says, a backdrop um, such as presidential visits or freedoms of the city or Jack Charlton returning from Italian 90, um, James Last having a concert uh, for for the people of Dublin. Um, you know, there's just, it lends itself to that. Uh, the, the New Year's Eve concerts that we've had there over the years, um, we've always been very keen to bring people in uh, and that remains very much the view that we take. I mean, it's it's probably it's possibly down to something of a happy accident in inverted commas that we have the piazza in front of the building. If there was no piazza, things would be very different. Uh, it, it's the perfect open air amphitheater for for these kind of things to to be displayed. So so it, as I say, happy accident, but we're we're delighted to, okay. to, that it's so. Okay, well, we're going to take a quick break now and we come back. We'll be finding out more about College Green as this wonderful historical resource, the history of Bank of Ireland on this, its 240th birthday and the future of the bank as well. So stay with us here on News Talk. Welcome back. We're talking history and tonight we are marking, we are, I suppose, commemorating, perhaps even celebrating the 240th anniversary, the 240th birthday of Bank of Ireland. And we're also exploring just what a wonderful historical treasure and resource the old House of Lords building, the old Parliament building is at Two College Green in Dublin. I'm delighted to be rejoined by my panel, John McGrath, the premises manager and custodian of Bank of Ireland at College Green, Mick O'Farrell, employee with Bank of Ireland and published historian, and Joe Lynham, the business editor at News Talk. Now, John, I have been really singing the praises of College Green as a, as a wonderful historical treasure, uh, somewhere where tourist visitors, even you know Irish people who just aren't aware of it should really pop in. What are the times that people should turn up? Well, I'm very grateful that uh, that you should have such a consideration because one of the things that we don't want to do is to have uh, our regular business at College Green because it is very much an active and uh, a daily bank for both business banking customers, personal customers. And when particularly large walking tours arrive, it can be a little bit of a challenge uh, to bring them through in a safe uh, way for everybody concerned. So the bank has uh, committed to... Uh, 
uh, an opening uh, between 10 and 12 on a daily basis for people who wish to come in uh, and to self-guide around the House of Lords, which is the non-banking, publicly accessible part of the building. Uh, On a Tuesday, we employ an historian to come in and to be available to answer questions that people might have. So I would suggest to the listeners that if they have any particularly burning questions that they might wish to ask, that they might try and funnel themselves in on a Tuesday. But if it's just a general visit to have a scope around, um, then they're very welcome 10 to 12 any of the weekdays. 10 to 12, Monday to Friday. Perfect. And Mick, it must be brilliant being an historian who's also able to work in the bank and work on these archives because it's... It's a way of, I suppose, uh, having a job that's also allowing you to do these extra, extra kind of dimensions as well. It's fantastic. I mean, it, it's it's you know you fa- you really fall into where you, where you hoped you would. Um, the, the resources and the, the the facts and the items that we've yet to dis- to. I hate saying discover when it comes to archive because the things are there and archivists really hate that as well. So the items are there. We need to rediscover them. We need to reinterpret them. We need to contextualise them. And and that's something I'm really looking forward to. And this is, as you, as you say, this is the 240th, um, only 10 more years to the 250th, which is the semi-quincentennial. Um, and so by the time that rolls around, uh, we, ho- we, we hope to have done a lot more diving and... Um, found a lot more interesting things. Could you be tempted or persuaded to write the history of Bank of Ireland for that 250th anniversary in 10 years time? Well, one of my one of my uh, one of my personal rules is never turn down a commission. <laughs> but the current the current go-to book on the Bank of Ireland is 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 by FG Hall published in 46 and it could be used as a dehumidifier. It's it's that dry to be perfectly honest, but it's fascinating and he he's really if if a, if a new history was to be written, it would pick up where he left left off because he really wrote the book literally. Okay, so that's what seventy six years old. It's pretty old by now, yeah. But if yeah. I if I could jump in here just to defend uh, F G Hall slightly, uh, I I completely agree with Mick. The the history of Bank of Ireland in terms of its monetary policy and so on is particularly arid. But in some of the volumes, there is uh, an architectural piece by Curran at the back. Uh, not a single word is wasted. It is one of, for an architectural historian or a student of history of art, I would strongly commend that they read that section on the Parliament building. It is truly a wonderful oh, piece of work. It's magnificently done, I have to say, yeah, and the research uh, is is second to none. So, Joe, what do you see as the future of banking? What do you see as the future of Bank of Ireland? I'm going to say something that, that I know Mick and John won't appreciate, but I would be amazed if that is still being used as a branch in 10 or 20 years time amazed their historical purposes are fantastic but uh, it is not a busy branch and uh, banking is moving towards more digital solutions whether that's handheld devices or online devices Uh, I suspect a a chief executive at some point a governor at some point will say do we really need to keep this incredible D2 property going we could sell it to the state but John, there is a there is a point there that you know it is such a a brilliant, it is the old Parliament building you know uh, the so called Grattan's Parliament it is the the home of all that great oratory in the seventeen eighties and the seventeen nineties it is where the Act of Union was debated and passed in seventeen ninety nine and eighteen hundred if it wasn't a bank if the state did you know purchase it and turn it into an historical resource centre and you know there could be a case to be made because. 
it would be a way of exploring, you know, you could use it to explore the history of things like Bank of Ireland and banking, but also the history of the old Irish Parliament, the story of Henry Grattan and legislative independence and, you know, the 18th century. It could be a a, a brilliant way of memorialising and remembering those far off times. No, I I absolutely appreciate that. And I can see, uh, you know, both perspectives there. What I would suggest is that drawing from Edding McParland, probably the greatest expert on Georgian architecture uh, alive today, and particularly that in Ireland, um, it would be uh, Eddie's view. And and, uh, so therefore uh, that had the Bank of Ireland not been in stewardship of this building for the last 200 years, uh, the the current building might be in a very different state and that we are in fact to be congratulated and it is a matter of celebration that the bank has um, stewarded it over that period of time. The bank has in the past looked at a number of options for College Green, not up to and including uh, selling it to the state or indeed to developing it in a number of different ways in terms of a cultural uh, asset to the city. Uh, a number of years ago, we took a, a portion of the building uh, which is now the Bank of Ireland's Cultural and Heritage Centre and uh, gave it to the National Library on a licence for 10 years, which is where the Seamus Heaney exhibition is currently located. I would be very surprised with Joe if that particular arrangement with the state didn't continue uh, after that 10-year licence period. And I think that is probably where the bank's appetite for the future lies, um, insofar as I'm in a position to know what that is. The danger is you could put millions into creating a historical resource and then it mightn't get the numbers, whereas Dublin Castle and Kilmainham you know, they span a number of centuries, but they also have that crucial 1916 connection and War of Independence connection. And maybe it does work better as this kind of almost secret treasure. You go through the door and you're you're transported back to 1799. You can almost see the Earl of Clare there, you know, ranting on about Catholic emancipation or something. And it is very much, uh, it, there's something magical about the fact that it is kind of hidden away. We are the custodian of the building and the history of the building and and we will do our best um, to make sure it's preserved, including, as I'm sure you're aware, the 36 million euro investment that we're starting on. At the, I think towards the end of this year to preserve and, and retain and, and improve. So, so we're continuing our job of custodian. There are 167 other branches in the branch network and we are celebrating this year our 240th anniversary of the foundation of Bank of Ireland. Um, I think it's also very interesting that in a lot of towns in Ireland um, when you when you rumble through them, it's quite often that one of the most impressive buildings in some of them happens to be a bank. Maybe not necessarily our bank, but it is a bank. It's it's a very important aspect of Irish life, I think. Okay, well, my thanks to my panel of experts for joining me tonight to celebrate 240 years of banking in Ireland. My thanks to John McGrath, the premises manager and custodian of Bank of Ireland at Two College Green in Dublin. Mick O'Farrell, historian and employee with Bank of Ireland and expert on the 1916 Rising and Joe Lynham, the business editor here at News Talk. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so I hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.